My kitchen table is absolutely the center of my house. I keep my sewing machine on it most of the time. It's kind of a dining room table, really. It seats six people. This is The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. It's where I work, it's where I eat, it's where my daughter and I have had a lot of amazing conversations. It's sort of where everything happens, much more than just dinner. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Most food writers I know think of food as the portal to the story, the lens in which we see things, the launching point. But when I was a little girl, I learned that the thing beneath the food, that silent witness, also had many stories to tell. I'm talking about the kitchen table. My dad is a physician, a writer, and a storyteller. He told us stories from his past, dark and adventurous, involving car chases and neighborhood mysteries, and sometimes he told us medical stories, peppered with equal parts gore and thoughtful human insight. There was always a moral to his stories. They often started with, it was a dark and stormy night, just like this one, which takes place on a kitchen table. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost, a marker for the doctor on his way to deliver a baby. The year was 1930. When he arrived, the woman in labor was already on the kitchen table. Her neighbors were clucking around her, boiling water, making tea, trying to keep her comfortable. The doctor, a proper man with a pencil mustache and a serious face, stood in the corner of the kitchen trying to find a spot to lay out his equipment. The doctor didn't approve of home births, especially those on the kitchen table. The potential for infection made him shudder with disgust. But a job needed to be done. He put on his sterile gown and gloves, laid out his sterile forceps and draped a sterile sheet over the woman, which promptly fell on the dirty floor and was replaced quickly by the women milling around. Contamination was everywhere. Soon the woman appeared to be in good labor. The doctor wanted to break her water, but he worried about infection. Just then, an older woman at the head of the table asked, Doctor, can we quill her now? The doctor had no idea what she meant, but he was a proud man, so replied, no. Time passed, laboring intensified, and again the woman at the head of the table asked, is it time to quill her yet? Again, the doctor said no. Finally, the woman at the head of the table said in an authoritative voice, Doctor, it's time to quill. Finally, he agreed, realizing that she knew something that he did not. So as quick as a wink, she headed out to the barnyard, and after a substantial amount of clucking, squawking, and carrying on, the woman returned with a big rooster tail feather. The doctor was terrified she was going to use it to break the woman's water, but she went straight to the head of the table and stuck the feather right up the lady's nose and gave it a couple of good twists. The woman in labor let out a big, chew, which was followed by a gush of water. The water had been broken using a sterile technique, and there was the baby's head. I know the moral of the story was just to have trust in those who know and be willing to admit ignorance and to always have a rooster nearby during deliveries, you know, that kind of stuff. But all I wanted to know was how many babies were born on that table and how many kids sat around it. And did they eat breakfast at the table the very next morning? 
Today on the Food Podcast, we talk stories from the kitchen table with Molly Weisenberg, a writer, creator of the James Beard award-winning blog, Orange Jet, co-owner of two restaurants and co-host of the Spilled Milk Podcast. Molly shares stories from her kitchen table in Seattle, a third-hand mid-century modern gem situated in the center of her home. We dive into the flavors that shape her life in food and writing, and restaurant owning, and sewing. Today on the Food Podcast. Not long ago, my friend gave me a copy of Molly Weisenberg's first memoir, A Homemade Life Stories and Memories from the Kitchen Table. She told me to take time with it, to savor it. But I burned through that book, pausing only to make some of her recipes. The recipes that shape memories from Molly's life. Crystallized ginger banana bread, arugula and pistachio salad with chocolate, and that buttermilk vanilla bean cake with glazed oranges and a dollop of creme fraiche. I made that one three days in a row. After I finished the book, I checked out her blog, Orangette, and devoured that too. What strikes me most about her writing is that it's equal parts sad, joyful, calming, and funny almost like a pound cake, a pound each of heavy ingredients, all mixed together. But the result is not too dense, not too sweet, just right. This is her magic. Writing about food can be too sweet, too saccharine. Good writing needs balance, hot, sour, and salty with the sweetness. I asked her how she navigates through all the flavors in her writing. The sour and the salty stuff, especially. I was just on this panel at a conference for culinary professionals. We hardly talked about food at all. It was a panel of four women. All of us have written or are in the process of writing memoirs about difficult life experience, whether it be going through cancer, having a child who is differently abled, having a long-term illness oneself, or in my case, going through a divorce and experiencing something that even I still struggle to understand, which is a, a huge change in my sexual orientation. There are moments when it feels really self-indulgent to write about these things. And yet I feel a strong imperative to write about them because no matter what each of us experiences in our own discrete lifetime, we all experience a much broader range of life experiences than our normal day-to-day lives give us room to talk about. And I experience tremendous relief in talking about the tough stuff with other people and in reading stories about the tough stuff. At the simplest level, it makes me feel less alone. And I find it hugely inspiring, too. I feel really strongly about writing about the things that we aren't supposed to talk about. In that first memoir, we're taken through Molly's childhood in Oklahoma. Then we travel with her to college and then to Paris. And then off we go to Seattle, where Molly eventually decides to leave a job in academia to write full-time. And we sit with her as her father dies of cancer. And then we meet Brandon, a New York music composer with a passion for cooking. And he's a reader of her blog, and he writes to her from New York. And she writes back, and the relationship blossoms through food and through writing. We're taken through their courtship, his arrival in Seattle, and their wedding. Her next book, Delancey, tells the story of their marriage and opening a restaurant together. And then they had a baby girl, and they named her June. Now she's four and a half. But we know her world is shifting. 
Life isn't always straightforward, but it's always flavorful. And writing about the real flavors, that stuff we're not supposed to talk about, is so important because it's real. But how does an ex-husband fit into this personal, public narrative? He has been supportive of my writing about my life from the beginning. He knows that I have never wanted my writing to leave a reader with that kind of like icky feeling when you're like, ooh, I wasn't supposed to read that. Ugh, I wish that person hadn't told me that. Ugh. I never want to leave somebody with that. So it's my job to do whatever work I have to do ahead of time before I press publish to make sure that I don't do that to you. And he trusts me to do that. Now, as we go through a divorce, you know, we've worked really hard to have a really loving relationship and there's no magic to that. I want to say like really openly that because in part we have owned a business together since a year after we got married, we have gone to therapy for years. You know, you can't, you can't be married to someone and run a business with them, much less have a child with them, any of the normal life things we do with our partner without getting some help from time to time. I think that all that work we've done over the years to learn how to work well together has allowed us to work well together, even in dismantling our marriage and finding a different relationship. And sure, there have been some terrible moments in there. For sure, but neither of us wants to stay there. And so we've been willing to work hard. And so it's important to me to write about that. There's no magic to any of it. And it's important for me to write about it because it's been so heartening for me to read about other couples who managed to have a kind of divorce that we don't often hear about, a good divorce. I'm committed to doing the work myself to not present my readers with writing that feels too raw and unfinished and angry. And I think that people around me have trusted me to do that, and I feel really grateful. Molly once spoke at a food blogging festival where she said, My goal is to do the work that I want to see done. I think that's the highest goal we aim for, the hardest goal. It's the goal that really gets me fired up. I ask her if she still feels the same way. What work does she want to see being done in the world? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. So to take the restaurants, for example, Delancey and Essex, when I see all of our staff genuinely having fun together, they're playing good music and it just feels good in there. It feels like people are happy. It feels like people are fulfilled. I know that we are making food from good ingredients that we can be proud of and that we are coming together in turn to give other people a good night. And that is so gratifying to me. And it's very intangible. I mean, it's really just a feeling. I think about the same thing in writing. You know, we all know what it's like to listen to a song and get a really powerful feeling from it or just feel good because of it. Or on the other hand, maybe go to a really difficult place because of it. I want my writing to make people feel something in a way that makes them feel very calm. I think my writing is also often kind of irreverent or silly or whatever, but I feel calm when I'm writing and it makes me really happy that somehow that comes through. Her writing also makes me happy. I laugh a lot. And I also laugh when I listen to Spilled Milk, the podcast she co-hosts with her best friend, Matthew Amster Burton. The premise of their podcast is this. They start with a food-related topic, from apples to polenta, and in their words, run with it as far as they can go. Regrettably, sometimes too far. It's hilarious. I imagine they record from Matthew's kitchen table. 
There are probably microphones on there, maybe a laptop, and of course the food stuff is there as well. Tater tots, ice cream floats, polenta, and Kleenex for when Molly laughs or cries. Their podcast often acts as a writing prompt for me. Like the time when they devoted a whole episode to sparkling water, all sorts of sparkling water memories started bubbling to the surface. So I sat down and I wrote about it at my kitchen table. My friends chipped in and gave us the table as a wedding gift. It's metal, made of stainless steel and rebar. My friend Jody was dating a restaurateur at the time. The table comes from his now-defunct restaurant, The Velvet Olive. Fittingly, the four seats are upholstered in velvet, the undersides are leopard print, a little secret surprise when you tip them upside down. The set has traveled to London and back with us. I used to lay a sheepskin across the top and nestle my newborn on it while I sip my morning coffee. Soon it'll go to someone else. It's not big enough for the five of us. And sorry, Jody, the rebar just isn't working for me anymore. But it was at this table while writing about sparkling water and thinking about Molly and her book, A Homemade Kitchen, Stories and Recipes from the Kitchen Table, that a new prompt entered my head. The kitchen table, that's the ingredient the thing filled with story, the witness to so much more than dinner. I had to play this spilled milk game with Molly herself. My kitchen table is absolutely the center of my house. I keep my sewing machine on it most of the time. It's kind of a dining room table, really. It seats six people. And usually there are only two or three of us eating at it at a time. So I always have a sewing machine on it because this is also where I do my sewing. Incidentally, Molly loves doing patchwork, particularly with triangles. Most recently, she made a pillowcase for a small pillow she keeps on her bed. Right now it's got a pile of cookbooks. I always keep candles on it. I light candles pretty much every night at dinner. Love that. It's where I work, it's where I eat, it's where my daughter and I have had a lot of amazing conversations, where Brandon and I have had a lot of amazing conversations. It's sort of where everything happens, much more than just dinner. Was it a wedding gift from a friend who was dating a guy who owned a restaurant? Or did it come from one of her restaurants? This table we got through a friend of ours, a woman named Olaya Land, who bought it off of Craigslist for $40. This is a Lane mid-century table. She found it for 40 bucks. It had been refinished terribly. And she used it for a little while. And then she moved into an apartment and it wasn't big enough for this table. So she gave it to us and we always thought about refinishing it and we never have. And I have to say, I have come to really embrace the super wonky finish of this table because it means that when my kids spill something on it or when she accidentally gets marker on it, I just don't care that much. And that's a really nice liberating feeling. So it's a beautiful table that will be more beautiful someday when I eventually refinish it. But that day is not today. So Molly's kitchen table has witnessed many sewing projects and meals and conversations and breakups and hours of writing. Based on the beauty of her recipes and the precise, thoughtfully written methods, I imagine she has a strict writing ritual, pausing only perhaps to make her father's French toast. I have always loved routine in a certain way. I love the rituals of 
everyday life. And I always thought when I left my then day job to write full time, which was 10 years ago, I always thought that I would be the kind of person who would write every day from 6 a.m. to 2. And I would have the same sweater that I wore each morning to tap into my like writer self or whatever. I have never found that thing. For me, the only thing that I have noticed is that I really need to be at home to write well. Even though my home is full of distractions for me, I just feel like I can tune the world out fastest here and get pulled along by the river of my thoughts more easily. I'm a listener of Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. One of the hosts, Kathleen Shannon, is from Oklahoma. She's a huge fan of Molly's. And did I mention that Molly is also from Oklahoma? So in true maritime fashion, I made some connections. I asked Kathleen, who is a blogger, a podcaster, and is writing a book, if she had any questions for Molly. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. I listened to Being Boss like back in the very, very early days and have come back to it again, like periodically. I always sort of like dip in and see what they're doing. And anyway, okay, cool that you should mention her. Okay, Kathleen wants to know, is the writing process different when writing a book versus writing blogs? The biggest challenge for me is to stay in the story longer. I think that the beautiful thing about blogging is its immediacy. And the fact that, well, I guess for better or for worse, blog posts are pretty short things. So we get out there, we put an idea out into the world and we're expected to wrap it up pretty quickly. So for me, one of the greatest challenges has been to slow myself down and let myself stay in the story longer or in the thought longer and push it farther than I might push it if I were feeling like I sometimes do when I blog, which is, oh, I just want to get this out into the world, I want to be done with it. But really taking the time to go all the way down into a thought. I imagine deep inside the thought bot is where all the good flavors lie, the salty, the spicy, the sour stuff, the things that are hard to swallow. I think also there's a huge learning curve with organizing a book. That's something that I have had to learn in the process, and I feel like I look forward to doing it a whole other way next time. I feel like I've learned so much with each book and have lots of things I'd want to do differently. So yeah, finding a a pattern of organization that works well and can hold together over the length of a book writing process and over the length of a book reading experience. There's a chapter called Happiness in Molly's first book. She writes that happiness for some might involve cotton candy and ice cream and peonies and babies. And for others, maybe it's law and order, warm sunshine and lunch. But then she adds, if you looked into a visual dictionary under happiness, you'd probably see a pan of slow roasted tomatoes. It's been almost 10 years since she wrote that book. Does she still believe that? And if not, what would be in her visual dictionary now under happiness? I think for me, it would be less about food. I I think what I've figured out through writing about food is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. So I think for me, it would be more about people now. It would be like a road trip with my favorite people. But I think I also had this realization at a certain point that for as much as all of the tangible pleasures of life are really nice, whether it be food or a sweater that you really love or whatever, I think I just realized that people are really all I've got in this lifetime. And I have to remind myself of that often because I'm the kind of person who can go days without seeing anyone if I had my druthers. 
At a certain point, I just realized, wow, it is time with other people that makes me truly happy. Not all the time, but a lot of the time, uh, more often than not. I think I have become a little bit more outwardly turned in that way. That's why she has a table that seats six. There's always room for more. And P.S. Molly's late father, Berg, was also a physician. She can't remember him performing any deliveries or minor surgeries on their kitchen table. But Berg did pierce her mom's friend's ears in that kitchen, using an ice cube to numb the earlobe. Thanks to Molly Weisenberg for sharing her stories from the kitchen table and beyond. You can find her at orangette.net or over on the Spilled Milk podcast available on iTunes. Molly's two memoirs with recipes, A Homemade Life, Stories and Memories from the Kitchen Table, and Delancey, A Man, A Woman, A Restaurant, A Marriage, are available at your favorite local bookstore. Thanks to my father, a writer and physician, for the quilling story. He interviewed that doctor, Dr. Chalmers, in 1976. The story was published in the Medical Post in 2004. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at The Food Podcast. And please sign up for my newsletter where I'll keep you up to date on podcast news and share backstories from the episodes and recipes too. All the flavors of life. You can sign up at lindsaycameronwilson.ca. And you can reach us anytime at thefoodpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks to Jen Grant for our theme song. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 